Welcome to another podcast of the Word of God. Today we'll be looking at the eighth Sunday after Pentecost, proper 11, proper 11. Now we've been talking about 1 Samuel, Acts, and Mark, and we will continue to do so. Now the point of the daily lectionary is to get you and me involved in reading the Bible on a regular basis. And reading it in such a way that you don't have to figure out every day what you're going to read. You're in a pattern of reading. You're in a pattern of reading. The pattern set out is an Old Testament lesson, a New Testament lesson, and a Gospel lesson. Now I might remind you that if you wanted to read the Psalms, you may do that also. A complete list of the lectionary readings can be found in the description of this post. So when you see that Psalm reading, you may want to read that also. The reason I don't go over the Psalms is just for the sake of time. But obviously, the 150 Psalms that are part of our reading and our piety and our study and our worship are very, very important. But I'm accentuating the three readings that are done on a daily basis. And so we are in the season after Pentecost day, if you will, the day of Pentecost. And we are looking at the scriptures and learning from them on a daily basis from these three points of view, Samuel, Acts, and Mark. Now back to our friend David and Saul in 1 Samuel. And you'll notice in the description of the lectionary readings that we go to 2 Samuel chapter 1, 16, and we conclude 1 Samuel. The reason I say that is that Saul is going to die at the end of 1 Samuel. Now, when you start at 1 Samuel 23, you have the continuation of Saul pursuing David. And what's basically happening when you read this is that he just continues to pursue him and they continue to deal with that on a quite extraordinary basis, meaning that Saul, the king, is trying to kill the one that's going to be king. But as you know, there's no way it's going to work because David is protected by the Lord. What does it say in 1 Samuel 23, 14, David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Beautiful scripture. God's in charge, folks. He is ultimately in charge. He is, as I said in the last podcast, he is sovereign. He is providential. He is the Lord. He is working to protect David. He's also working to protect Saul because he doesn't want Saul killed either. Yet. But David is protected. Now, that doesn't mean you just sit there and don't do anything. But in David's moving around, which he does in many chapters in 1 Samuel, God is protecting him ultimately. So enjoy 1 Samuel 23. In 1 Samuel 24, 
we have David sparing Saul's life. David could have killed him. I made reference to that last week. He could have killed him. Verse 5, chapter 24. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David saw him as anointed of the Lord, and he did not have the right to have him killed. He did not give anyone the right to kill him. He was anointed by God. He was God's man, as it were. And David left it up to God to deal with Saul. Very smart, very smart. In chapter 25, still read through that. In chapter 25, we have David, Nabal, and Abigail. Now Samuel died, verse 1, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. And so we have this story of these three individuals. And Abigail actually is a very important person. Listen to verse 38 of chapter 25. The Lord struck Nabal and he died. The Lord struck Nabal and he died, or Nabal, if you will. Then David heard that Nabal was dead. Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. And you'll read that to see what that was all about. He has kept me from doing wrong and has brought Nabal wrong, Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Again, God's in charge. God is ultimately in charge. When you and I trust him with our lives, our souls, our salvation, our daily living, we're going to be a lot better off than taking it into our own hands. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. She bowed her face to the ground, verse 41. Here's your maidservant ready to serve you and to wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey, attended by her five maids, and became his wife. David also married Ahinaman of Jezreel, and both, they both were his wives. So David had quite a few wives. Skip over to 1 Samuel 28. It's a fascinating, reminds me of Macbeth and the three witches. Saul and the witch of Endor. Saul and the witch of Endor. Samuel is dead. He's in trouble. He needs discernment. He knows that God has given up on him. He inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him. The Lord did not then give him an answer. He didn't know what to do. Find me a woman who's a medium, so may go and inquire of her. There's one in Endor. Verse 7. Can you imagine consulting a medium, consulting a spirit, and he conjures up Samuel, who's dead? What happens in verse 17? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands. This is Samuel speaking. And given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand you over to Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. 
the Lord will hand you over to the army of Israel, to the Philistines. Now, we're going to fight a battle. And it's going to look like the Philistines won because they were better. But that's not what happened. What actually happened was God's in charge and God handed you over. Again, the sovereignty of God. God doing the impossible. God being in charge of history. God being in charge of every one of our lives. This is why we want to fear the Lord. This is why we want to take the Lord seriously. Because he has the power to literally kill us. We saw that. The Lord struck Nabal and he died. The woman came to Saul in verse 21. He was greatly shaken. And then we see in verse 31, Saul takes his life. It's a very tragic ending to Saul's life. Let's look at that. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard. This is chapter 31, verse 2. Pushed hard after Saul and his sons. They killed his sons, Jonathan. Jonathan died. Abimanab, Malki, Shua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul when the archers overtook him and they wounded him critically. He said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run it through me. Armor bearer was terrified, wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. He literally fell on his sword. You've heard that idiom, falling on your sword. He killed himself. What a tragic ending. David hears of Saul's death. This is the last scripture for the week of proper 11. He tells him what happened. And look at what Saul says in verse 14. This is pretty stunning. Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and the guy that reported died. David said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Well, the Lord's anointed was killed by himself. So you will be reading this particular week, proper 11, about the tragic ending of Saul's life. How David spared Saul many times, actually. And how the Lord protected David from Saul killing him. And as we'll see in coming weeks, we will see the ascendancy of the great King David when we look at proper 12. In Acts, we turn to Acts 13. Remember, we left Acts with a missionary journey, which we're going to see the rest of the way. We're going to see missionary journeys. Why are we going to see missionary journeys? Because we need to get the message of the gospel out. Why are we doing that? Well, you look at the end of Matthew 28. That's what Jesus told us to do. Go and proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 15, 36 through Acts 17, 34 is where we are. Uh, no, that's uh, next week. Uh, this is Acts 13, 44 to Acts 15, 35. So proper 11 is Acts 13, 44 to Acts 15, 35. So let's look at those scriptures quickly. Now what you'll find as you're reading through Acts in the missionary journeys, you'll hear speeches, 
you'll hear preaching. You'll hear them um, deal with the crowds that they're dealing with, answering questions, working with them, doing miracles sometimes. Verse 46. We had to speak the word of the Lord to you first. This is, these are the Jewish people. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, what precipitated that? Look at verse 30, 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's what they wanted to happen. They're here to share the gospel. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. The Jewish people incredibly, sadly, tragically, never received from Paul the gospel. Oh, I'm sure a few did, but it was small numbers. So he said, you've rejected it. We are going to go and begin to work with the Gentiles. Now, we saw the beginning of the Gentile salvation and the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 10. I made you a light for the Gentiles, chapter 13, verse 47, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. Yeah, I'd be glad too. And honored the word of the Lord and all who appointed for eternal life believed. So the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, verse 49. All right, the word of God is going out. The Holy Spirit is accompanying them. Miraculous signs attend them. People are joining them. The number of Christians is growing. God is with them. The message of the gospel is saving people. Sadly, Jewish people are not on board. But the Gentiles, who have been lost for a long time, they are very happy. Chapter 14, again, <clears throat> read these sections slowly, and they have to do with bringing the good news, sharing some sometimes very important theological truths, and interacting with these folks from city to city. Remember last week I reminded you to look at your geography, look at your maps at the back of your Bible, they'll probably be there, and see where they physically are. It'll give you a good feel for their movement. Sometimes you'll have maps that connect the dots for you. I wouldn't be very surprised at all if you had a map that did that. Verse 15. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. So a beautiful example of the doctrine of the faith. Good news, the gospel. Turn away from these idols. Follow the Lord. He's the one that made heaven and earth. On verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in their each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. So after they had evangelized a place, they began to raise up elders, presbyters as it were, and they began to give them authority and pray for them that as they went from city to city and town to town, and they left the people they had shared the gospel with who had become Christian, then God raised up elders and started churches, if you will in those areas. And what Paul would do on his missionary journeys, he'd go back and see these people again and see how they're doing. And the letters that he wrote, 13 in all, became letters to these congregations 
that had been raised up by the Lord and by Paul's preaching. And Paul wrote to them different ones, different groups, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, Rome, sharing the gospel with them. So we have Paul's journeys in Acts, and then we have the letters to the places that he went to and the people that God saved and the issues they were dealing with at that time. Now, in chapter 15, which is a very famous chapter in Acts, we have a problem in the church with the Jewish people and the idea of salvation. Unless, verse 1, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were telling the Gentiles, you got to be circumcised or you can't be a Christian. And Paul was saying, nope, that's not right. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But the Jewish people that were Christian, Jewish Christians, were saying that you had to. So they called a council at Jerusalem. And all the big shots came. All the big shots came. Barnabas and Paul shared in verse 12 about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among them. And then James, who we think was the bishop of Jerusalem, spoke up. Brothers, listen. Again, read that very closely. Very good stuff. The early church dealing with a conflict, dealing with a divisive issue, dealing with an issue that could have destroyed the whole process. If the, each, every Gentile had to be circumcised, that would have been a big disaster. But that wasn't the message of the gospel that Jesus wanted them to share. And then they wrote a letter. At the end, if you're looking at your Bible, at the end of Acts chapter 15. It seemed good, verse 28, to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. In the end, we prayed, and here's what we'd like you to do. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Now, the Gentiles were notoriously immoral. Notoriously immoral. And to be called out of that sexual immorality, porneia is the Greek word, was an extraordinary, if I could use that term again, transition for them, and not easy. And food sacrifice to idols wasn't easy either. So those are the two stipulations that the Council of Jerusalem made. And then they delivered the message to all the churches. Paul and Barnabas, verse 35, remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So as you're reading the book of Acts, you want to get a feel for what the early church dealt with. Was it perfect? Not by a long shot. Lots of problems. Lots of problems. But the book of Acts is very important in dealing with how the early church began and how they dealt with those problems. Now, we go back to the works of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 and 5 and the beginning of 6 are in our readings for proper 11. 
And in Mark chapter 4, we have Jesus' teaching ministry, and he's going to be teaching in parables. And I love verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, did everybody understand what he was saying? No. Only those that had ears to hear. And we're not talking about your ears working. We're talking about spiritual revelation. We're talking about God speaking to you in such a way that you can hear what he is saying. So he has a parable of the sower, which I know all of you know probably quite well. And then he explained it to them. So he told them the parable in verses 1 through 8, and then he explained it to them. I love verse 20. Others like seeds sown on good soil. There was only one good soil. Four soils, one good. They hear the word. They accept it. They produce a crop. So what you want to do in your life is you want to hear what God has to say. You want to accept it. You want to allow it to come into your life. And you want to produce a crop. 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Now, the differentiation there, the differentiation there between 30, 60, and 100 shows you that people receive it in different ways. Consider what you hear, he said in verse 24. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, who has will be given more. Who does not have even what he has will be taken from him. It's a basic principle of the Lord, Okay. So what do you want to do with the miracles, which we talked about last week? You want to read those. You want to see how that impacts you and affects your relationship with Christ. In the teaching, you'll want to learn about the kingdom of God. You want to learn what, it, what does Jesus believe? What is his kingdom like? What kind of message does he want to share with me? And so... What we do in the lectionary readings is you keep going between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you just keep cycling through this information. You just keep reading it over and over and over again. Okay? The parable of the growing seed, the parable of the mustard seed, all wonderful parables that are very deep, very theologically deep, very simple in terms of understanding, but very deep in terms of how significant they are theologically. Jesus calms the storm. At the end of Mark chapter 4, this is, I made reference to the fact that he can calm the wind in the seas. Quiet, be still. The wind dies down, verse 39, and it was completely calm. He says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So he's working off of the idea of casting out devils. He's healing people dramatically, in a dramatic way. We'll see that coming up in the next chapter. And he has power over the wind and waves. He can actually calm storms down. A furious squall came up. The winds, waves broke over the boat, and Jesus is sleeping. So he's not concerned about it because he knows he's not going to die because he has power over the things that the disciples thought were trying to kill him, the wind and the waves and the squalls and the bad weather. Jesus wakes up, as I said earlier, quiet, be still, he takes care of the problem. In chapter 5, we have the healing of a demon-possessed man. It's a beautiful chapter from verses 1 through 20. 
And then we have the dead girl and a sick woman. And again, great example of tremendous, tremendous power. So this person has power over the wind and the waves. This person has the power over demons. This person has the power of somebody dead. There's nothing he can't do. And when you find out that he is the creator of the universe and he is an eternal being and he's in fact God, then you begin to understand that. He's showing them that in Mark's gospel. I don't think that many people really understood what was going on, but their eyes could not belie them. He was doing things that no one had ever seen before. Incredulously, in chapter 6, He goes to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples, verse 1. He teaches in the synagogue as he normally does on the Sabbath. Many who heard him were amazed. Where did the man get these things? What wisdom has been given him that he even does miracles? How did this happen? It's a good question. Isn't he a carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? I know this guy. I knew him when he was 10, 15, 18, 25. Well, I, I didn't see this coming. We, we know his family. They can't do anything like this. And they took offense to him. The Greek word is scandalon. He was scandalous. So in, rather than embracing him, they rejected him. And Jesus famously says in verse 4 and 5, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay a hand on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So their lack of faith precipitated in a situation where he did very few healings. So our faith is extraordinarily important. It's important to believe. And what Mark is doing is he's showing how important and significant this person is and who he really is. And he's encouraging us to put our faith in him. And through his teaching, and through his preaching, and through his casting out of demons, through his healing, and his evidence of his, if you will, godlike power in calming the winds and the waves and doing other things, we can come to believe that he truly is the Messiah. Well, you have a good appetite of David and Saul, the death of Saul. You also have this phenomenal council that's called together in Jerusalem in Acts 15, where the church is preserved, even though it could have gone south with the Jewish people wanting Gentiles to be circumcised. And then finally, the work of God that Jesus does in Mark chapter 4 and 5. We'll pick up with each of these scriptures next week as we continue our journey in the Word of God. God bless you and have a wonderful week.